This audio file comes from the Libri Ideas Library at www.libri-ideas-library.org. The library contains over 1,000 lectures and discussions which explore questions about the reality and relevance of Christianity. We ask you to respect the copyright for this audio file which belongs to Libri Fellowship. The file is for personal use to share with friends, family and colleagues, but please do not publish the material in any format or post it on a website without seeking permission from Libri Fellowship. Please note that views expressed in the lecture and discussion time do not necessarily represent the views of Libri Fellowship. Congratulations. Yes, I am recording on the thing too. All right, well, hello to uh, anyone, or to those watching, especially, uh, well, not just especially, but Chris Peters. Hey, Chris. Uh, And everyone else, Woody, Art, Maria, and anyway, thank you for joining us. Uh, And for those that are here, thanks for coming downstairs, uh, or thanks for coming from wherever, Friday night at Labrie. Um, Does anyone know what next week's lecture is? Who's next week? Ben, Ben, you're. On, I feel so lost. Ben, tell tell me about next week. Um, well, I'd rather not actually. Okay, even a title. It's all. It's it's. Um, I don't have a title on the tip of my tongue. There will be a lecture. On, yeah, it's all good next week. I uh, tune in. It'll be real exciting. You can find out what it's about. It's on the internet. Yes. Yeah, it's been publicized. Yeah, you should know. You should know. Um, not you, Ben. You shouldn't. You don't have to know. The people online. I should just start. Uh, well, welcome again. Tonight's lecture is on uh, the Apostle Paul and the silence or the silencing of women. I gave it a, a different, a slightly different title uh, before. And this is the third lecture that I've done in a series of lectures looking at Paul's teaching about women uh, in the church, in the home. Uh, So in this one, we're going to be looking in particular at two texts uh, that talk about this, women staying silent. But as a way into this fraught, but I think important topic of Paul and these passages that talk about the silence of women, let's do something completely unrelated for a moment. Imagine with me you're not here at Labrie or you're not at home in sweatpants. Imagine you're at your favorite restaurant. And imagine this restaurant has an exceptional bathroom, beautiful bathroom. And you're having a nice dinner with a friend. You go to the bathroom to do your business. Now, in this bathroom, there are only stalls. Uh, so everyone, you're sitting in the stall. You're enjoying this lovely space uh, in your favorite restaurant. It's a beautiful bathroom. Uh, and you're sitting there alone, and then you hear two people come in the room. They come into the bathroom and they're mid-conversation. And what they say sends chills up your spine. Your body pulses with adrenaline. Because all you hear that's said is, and we killed him. And we killed him. You know exactly what these were, you've just, what you've just heard. Maybe you freak out a little bit. You lift your feet up so they don't see someone is in, in the stall right there. Because there's killers talking about killing right outside the stall. Um, but in this moment, remember, we're just imagining here, you are a very brave person. You are a courageous person, and you want to know who's saying this. Who's standing out there saying, and then we killed him. And even though this is a really nice bathroom, it ha- happens to have a wide gap 
in the door so you can peer through. And imagine how you would respond if when you peered through what you saw, who said this, was this, the Sopranos. You would know what Tony... Oh, it's hard to see on the one up here. Hopefully you can see at home. But you, you, you know what they mean when they say, <clears throat> and we killed them. But how different you would respond if when you peered through the crack, you saw the basketball team. You would assume, oh, they just like crushed it at a game. Like they did great. You would probably be a little more relaxed. But think about how different it would also be if it was Vikings. If you looked out and there were Vikings, this would probably be more in line with the, the response to the Sopranos in the sense of who they just killed or what they just killed. But imagine... If it wasn't Vikings, but it was exterminators. Again, probably a little more relaxing. And we killed them. Uh, these, uh, this is a, a sort of silly exercise in many ways. Um, but hopefully it just illustrates something about human communication. That meaning is conveyed in many ways through context. Context. Words gain their meaning through context. Killing them means pretty different things when it's the Sopranos and when it's the basketball team or when it's the exterminator. And with this sort of well, truth in mind, I want to turn to the two passages that I want to look at tonight. We're going to hear what Paul says. And we're going to spend the rest of our time trying to figure out what he means, um, what perhaps he means. So here's the first passage, 1 Corinthians 14, 34 to 35. You have a Bible at home, grab it. If you're here and you have a Bible, it's also a good idea to have it open. First uh, Corinthians 14:34-35. Women should remain silent in the churches. They are not allowed to speak, but must be in submission, as the law says. If they want to inquire about something, they should ask their own husbands at home, for it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church. Um, this is from the NIV. And then 1 Timothy 2, 12-14. I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. But women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with propriety. Um... Now again, as ridiculous as the the uh, Vikings in your favorite public or your favorite bathroom sounds, uh, it not only brought a little bit uh, of levity. As we hopefully this helps us think a little bit about not just what Paul is saying in these two passages, but what he means. How can we discern what he means? What is he getting at? Are we talking about murder? Are we talking about beating another team? Are we talking about getting rid of cockroaches? Moving to Paul, and then in particular, are these silences a universal prescription, or are they a particular response to particular situations in particular churches that Paul is writing to? We know from Paul's letters that both of those dynamics are in Paul's letters. And when Paul says in 1 Timothy 5, when he talks about, make every effort to come visit me in Troas and bring me the cloak, that I left. We know he's not commanding everyone to do such a thing. We'd never find this cloak, and actually finding Troas is a very difficult uh, thing to do. Um, uh, so are, are, are those are options. And I'm just going to put my cards on the table up front and say I fall into the second option. I think 
through looking in these texts, Paul is saying a particular word to a particular group of women uh, in, in these churches. I don't think he's making a universal norm for all churches. Um, and uh, so let me just say a little bit where we're going to go together. I'm going to all too inadequately from here, all too inadequately talk about the contemporary discussion, the scene. I'm going to look at Paul's female co-workers, the women he names in his letters. That is the thing, actually, that really got me thinking again about what could these texts, what could these two in particular sets of verses mean. Then we'll look at 1 Corinthians, we'll look at 1 Timothy 2, and then we'll be done, uh, and we'll have a time for questions. So first, sort of the main, um, or sort of the contemporary discussion. There's two main paths. There's two sort of large groups uh, in, in, in the North American church who want to take biblical authority seriously and, and uh, figure out what Paul is talking about. And we could call them, or they go by the terms complementarian or egalitarian. Complementarians believe men and women equally share the image of God. They have equal status and worth. But there is a difference in roles that men have and that women have. That gifting is sort of divided along the lines of biological sex. And the emphasis is often on male headship or male leadership. Egalitarians, on the other side, believe in, share the same idea of equality of status. How y'all doing? Good. Thanks for coming. Um, uh, but the roles, both in the home and in the church, are shared and are given by, by the Holy Spirit, how the Holy Spirit decides. They're given for the building up of the church, and they are not given along gendered lines, at least the gifts of leadership and teaching. And though I would be classified as an egalitarian, the second one, that's sort of what I'm moving towards, I just want to say I would rather work alongside complementarians who disagree with me on the nature of women in the home and the church uh, than I would with egalitarians who don't take the Bible seriously or who arrive at the same position by dismissing Paul. We're saying the Bible doesn't really matter. It's 2021. Let's move on. I think taking Paul and biblical authority seriously is the way we get there. So that's, those are the two main camps. And there's, there's a common assumption, I think, amongst a lot of people that if you want to hold on to that authority of scripture, if you want to be properly uh, conservative, theologically speaking, you would assume that the complementarian camp is the traditional one. This is the traditional argument that the church has always held. In fact, many complementarians want to argue that they're simply defending a position that all Christians have held because it's the self-evident teaching of the Bible. I don't think this is actually quite right, and we're going to get to that. While the practice of not ordaining women, uh, not letting women lead or teach in the church, may be the same throughout much of church history, the rationale behind it has not been the same. The reasoning has been different. And so I think both this complementarian camp and this egalitarian camp are new positions. Neither of them are the traditional uh, positions the church has held. And what I want to say here might be easily misunderstood, so I want to just situate it within a larger point and say emphatically that the emergence of Christianity in the Greco-Roman world was a tremendous gift to women. And same through, uh, throughout subsequent history, uh, Christianity was a massive gift, especially Pauline Christianity, Paul's churches and Paul's letters. This is part of the burden of the work of a historian named Kyle Harper. 
I don't know if Kyle Harper is a Christian. I really should have made this. Um, it's pretty blurry. I'm so sorry for everyone who's here. But anyway, Kyle Harper, his book is called From Shame to Sin. Um, and he's doing many things in this. The subtitle is The Christian Transformation of Sexual Morality in Late Antiquity. And he's doing many things in this. And a way that I make sense of Harper's overall argument uh, or his overall point is that uh, take, he doesn't say this this way, but take, for example, Harvey Weinstein, uh, a social pariah, someone we collectively disdain for how he has abused and treated women. On Harper's reading, Weinstein is an ideal Roman man. Because Roman men, by law, are can only commit fornication, can only have sexual immorality with a free woman, uh, another free man's wife. So a free man in Rome could have sex with whoever he wanted to of lower status, and there's no social wrong, there's no laws to protect those that the man takes advantage of. He, he can do whatever he wants. And Harper says, into this world, what he calls a sexual economy, comes Paul. And Paul says, actually, everyone has the same sexual morality. Everyone has the same sexual ethic. Just because you're a powerful man doesn't mean you can do what you want. In fact, in Paul's churches, eros, desire, doesn't rule the day, but agape, brotherly and sisterly affection. And so Paul presents a morality that is new in the Roman world, in a sense democratizes uh, 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 immorality, allows Roman men to fall into this category of sexual sin if they have sex with anyone other than their wives. So Paul does something that's radical here. And Harper says this is in part why women and slaves were so drawn to Pauline churches, were so drawn to Christian churches, because their bodies and their dignity were respected there. Where they weren't, there was no legal recourse uh, for them outside of the church. And so I'm saying this because I want to say that Christianity brought to women, as well as to slaves and people of lower status, a dignity that was absent in the dominant Roman culture. Again, women and their bodies were to be honored as their own. And within the Pauline assembly, eros and the sexual liberties of free Roman men was not the rule of the day. Um, But that being said, and I'm turning here to the work of a theologian named William Witt in his book, Icons of Christ, um, construing the complementarian position that uh, men and women are equal in status, Uh, but there's differing roles. Construing that as the traditional one is not quite right. Witt argues very carefully and thoroughly in a focused way uh, in this book. But he writes, Historically, there is a single argument that was used in the church against the ordaining of women. Women could not be ordained to ministry, whether the Catholic priesthood or Protestant pastorate, because of an inherent ontological defect because of a lack of intelligence or a tendency to irrationality or emotional instability, a greater susceptibility to temptation or an inherent incapacity to lead. Women were held to be inferior than men and thus were not eligible for ordination. Moreover, this argument was used to exclude women not only from clerical ministry, but from all positions of leadership over men and largely confined women to the domestic sphere. It's a big quote. It's a long thing. Witt walks through church history very carefully, very slowly, 
looking at big players like Origen, Tertullian, Chrysostom, Augustine, Aquinas, up to the reformers. He spends a lot of time with the Anglican reformers. He's an Anglican theologian. And he highlights this tragic reality that when many male leaders and theologians in church history spoke of why women can't lead, they did not stress, as modern complementarians do, the equality of men and women. That was not what that was not their move. And I, I want to say this again against the backdrop of the honor and the dignity that the Christian faith undoubtedly brought to women in the ancient world and throughout history and today, the world over. I, I don't want to present a simplistic, one-sided diatribe against a backward patriarchal tradition. Uh, again, Christians brought remarkable improvement to the lives of women in the ancient world. Wit is also making that same point. Uh, but it was just not completely free of residual misogyny, patriarchy, or hierarchy, which characterized the broader culture. So Wit goes on to say, there's been a major shift from, the, uh, from this position in recent decades. Somewhere around the mid-20th century, the historic claims about women's essential inferiority and intellectual incapacity for leadership simply disappeared. Instead, all mainline churches, Catholic, Orthodox, Protestant, and Anglican, recognize the essential equality between men and women, including the fundamental intellectual and moral equality. I I just say this because I think it's important to realize that an assumed uh, traditional position of complementarianism is not, in fact, the traditional position. It changes. It's the same maybe in practice, but it's different in the theology or the rationale. Not allowing women to lead or teach has been a constant, but the rationale behind it has changed. And my point is just to make that both complementarian and egalitarian positions, the sort of major camps Christians in North America fall into today, are themselves both new positions. Um, And neither sort of get uh, an esteemed place because they're the supposed traditional um, position. So there's a lot more to say about that. Um, we can always come back to that in the discussion. But I want to move on. Oop, I, uh, it's a little... Um, see what happened right there? I didn't put the PowerPoint on that part. Anyway, it doesn't matter. Well, PowerPoint faux pas. Just keeping it real here. Um, but I want to move to talk about Paul's female co-workers. I've given another lecture uh, on Paul, a friend of women, that kind of walks through this in a much more detailed um, way. But this is the thing that has made me rethink... That my assumption about these other two passages, about a universal silencing of women in the church, can't be quite right. Because um, Paul himself does not seem to exclude women from teaching and leadership roles in his churches. And Romans 16 is a, is a really central place for this. The closing list of greetings that comes at the end, Romans 16, is a fascinating, fascinating read. It's, a, it's an exciting part of Paul's letters, it sort of reads like a genealogy in some ways, but it's interesting to see the different makeup of a Christian community uh, in the first century. But in it, Paul commends uh, and names many women in the church in Rome. And interestingly, though he names twice as many men in this list in Romans 16, uh, he names twice as many men as he does women. He commends twice as many women as he does men. In the first uh, two verses, he talks glowingly about Phoebe, whom he speaks of as a deacon from the church of Chantria. She is a leader there in some sense. He then moves on to speak about Priscilla uh, and calls, calls her his fellow worker 
And Priscilla shows up all throughout Paul. She shows up in uh, Acts as well. Uh, Her husband and her were sort of a first century Christian power couple. And we see her teaching Apollos in the book of Acts. And Paul here calls her a fellow worker. In verse 6, he speaks of Mary, who also worked very hard alongside him. Verse 7, he talks about Junia, which is a whole another story, who was outstanding among the apostles. In verse 12, he talks about Tryphena and Tryphosa. He speaks of them as women who worked hard in the Lord. And I just like to think of them as twins. I don't know if they were. They just (laughs) sound like twins. Um, And then if you move into Philippians... Oh, I think I missed, I did do part of the, oh, see, Rome, anyway, this is a disaster of a slide. Oh, my Lord. Um, moving into Philippians, he speaks about Euodia and Syntyche, who he speaks of as fighting alongside him, working alongside him. He calls them his fellow workers. And unless you're employed at Labrie, the title of worker sounds pretty nondescript, kind of, that's what we're called here at Labrie. Um, it sounds kind of bland. But is a word that Paul uses time and again to describe those who work alongside him in his mission for the risen Christ. And in 1 Corinthians 16, 15 to 16, he actually tells the church in Corinth they need to submit. All of them need to submit to fellow work, to the people that work in the Lord. He says this. Now, brothers and sisters, you know that members of the household of Stephanas were the first converts in Achaia. And they've devoted themselves to the service of the saints. I urge you to put yourselves at at their service. It literally means to subject yourselves, subordinate yourselves of such people and of everyone who works in the Lord. In 1 Thessalonians, Paul directs the church to recognize and honor its leaders who are described as those who labor, those who work among you and have charge of you in the Lord. So this description, it might sound kind of bland, but to be a worker in Paul's, Paul's world, this is a status in the early church. This is an important thing. And it's just worth noting very quickly that when Paul speaks about spiritual gifts, especially Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, Ephesians 4, places where he names teaching and leadership as gifts, as things the Holy Spirit gives for the building up of the body. He talks about them as being given as the Spirit sees fit, not according to biological sex, not according to gender. Is he, he gives it to whomever. So it's interesting to think about both seeing where Paul speaks about a theology of spiritual gifts. He does not tend to. He doesn't speak about biological sex as an arbiter in who gets which gift. And we see that he works alongside women. They had an honored place. This was, for me, again, the thing that really got me thinking differently about what these two passages might mean. Uh, And so that's what we're going to move to right now. And I want to start with 1 Corinthians 14, 34 to 35. I'm just going to take a quick drink of water. So women should remain silent in the churches. They're not allowed to speak but must be in submission, as the law says. If they want to inquire about something, they should ask their own husbands at home, for it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church. Now, every attentive reader of these verses, complementarian, egalitarian, 
concede that whatever Paul is saying here cannot be an absolute prohibition on women speaking in the church. Because earlier, just a few chapters earlier in 1 Corinthians 11, he's talking about women speaking in the church, praying and prophesying. So a major complementarian New Testament scholar, a guy named D.A. Carson, writes, The interpretation of this passage here is by no means easy. The rub of the difficulty is that 1 Corinthians 11, 2-16, Paul is quite prepared for women to pray and prophesy, albeit with certain restrictions. But here, a first reading of this text seems to make this silence he enjoys enjoins absolute. So the question for everybody, uh, if it's not an absolute silence, what sort of silence is it? What is the limitation for women's voices that Paul has in mind here? Uh, now, uh, this <clears throat> this passage, uh, as well as the passage that complicates it from 1 Corinthians 11, come in a larger unit in 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 11 to 14, where the primary concern is life in the assembly, life in the church. An essential concern of Paul here is order, as opposed to disorder, particularly order in worship. Briefly, 1 Corinthians 11, uh, 2 to 16 in particular, is about men and women leading worship and what attire is appropriate for them to do so. This is the head coverings passage. This will be a lecture in like five or six years because I think that is the most confusing thing that Paul says without a doubt. Um, and then from there, he talks about in, in chapter 11 still from 17 to 34, he talks about disorder and inappropriate behavior in the community meal. That there were some who were gorging themselves, there were some who were going hungry, and there were disparities uh, that undermined the purpose of the meal. Then in chapter 12, as well as chapter 14, you'll notice I skipped 13, we'll come back, he discusses the proper order of worship as it relates to spiritual gifts, or to charismatic gifts. And our verses that we're considering here fall into that, the use of gifts in the uh, worship of the church. The center of this theology, though, the thing we skipped over, is 1 Corinthians 13. And that is the higher concern. What does order serve? It serves love. The center here of the life of the church is Paul's well-known hymn to love in 1 Corinthians 13. We hear it a lot in weddings, but for Paul, it names the sort of life that defines the assembly, defines the body of Christ. Um... And this is the purpose that ordered worship and ordered life together serves. Love within the assembly. Now I'm gonna, I know I just read this, but I'm gonna read this in a little larger section. And I'm gonna read it in a different translation, only because I brought a different translation, unbeknownst to myself. But here we go. This is, this is sort of the larger section. Uh, so listen along. Uh, when you meet, this is starting 1126. When you meet together, each one has a psalm, a teaching, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. All these things must be done to build up the church. If some speak in a tongue, then let two or three at most speak, one at a time, and someone must interpret. However, if there is no interpreter, then they should keep quiet in the meeting. They should speak privately to themselves and to God. In the case of prophets, 
Let two or three speak and have the rest evaluate what is said. If some revelation comes to someone who is sitting down, they should be quiet. You can all prophesy one at a time so that everyone can learn and be encouraged. The spirits of the prophets are under the control of the prophets. God isn't a God of disorder, but of peace, like in all the churches of God's people. Then here we go. The women should be quiet during the meeting. They're not allowed to talk. Instead, they need to get under control, just as the law says. If they want to learn something, they should ask their husbands at home. It's disgraceful for a woman to talk during the meeting. I'll stop there. But as I read that, I sort of read that dramatically, I think, at some points. But did you notice there were two other groups of people that in this section on order and love in the church, Paul names, and he tells them to be quiet, presumably because they're being disorderly in the assembly, which is not showing love, the higher purpose. So the silence in this overall passage, we see in verse 27 and 28, tongue speakers who don't have an interpreter need to be silent. They shouldn't talk. And also, just a couple of verses later, if someone has a prophetic word and they're sitting down because someone else is talking, they need to be silent until it's presumably time for them to speak. Again, he speaks about them speaking in turn. And then the third group he names are women who are not to speak in the church. Now, uh, the wider context, again, is one of love shown through order in the assembly. In the same manner, I think that Paul is not asking all tongue speakers or all prophets to be silent in the church at all times and in all assemblies. I don't think he's singling out women to be silent in all times and all assemblies either. I think Paul, what I see here is Paul asking certain women to be quiet, to keep order in the assembly, since there's something about their manner of speaking that must be disruptive, just like uh, speaking out of turn uh, or speaking uh, in a tongue and not having it interpreted. So what could this have been? What could be going on? And I think we can discern the nature of, of some of these women's particular disruption through Paul's solution to the problem. And here I'm going to follow a great scholar who I really admire, a guy named Craig Keener in his book, Paul, Women and Wives, Marriage and Women's Ministry in the Letters of Paul. And just because this felt imbalanced on the slide, here's a picture of Craig with his own wife. He's not just someone writing about wives. He has a wife. Uh, His name is Medin, and she was on uh, his website. So that's why I got this picture. Um, But Keener believes that the particular disorder which required this call to silence is not that women are teaching or leading when they shouldn't, but it's that they are learning and how they are learning that is causing a problem. Keener is clued in by verse 35, Paul's solution to the problem. If there's anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home. Paul doesn't explain his injunction to silence through reinforcing that women shouldn't be leading or women shouldn't be teaching. Paul appears to be concerned about how these women, in particular wives, are going about their learning. 
Now, Keener's expertise is in the Greco-Roman culture in which early Christianity emerged. And he writes about how it was common in the Mediterranean that if one was confused about what was going on in a teaching, perhaps like what you're feeling a little bit tonight, um, they, they could interrupt and they could ask a question aloud in the assembly. Um, and uh, they could they could raise their hand and ask, but there was an etiquette. There were particular etiquettes to this custom. For example, generally speaking, a questioner was not to be rude. They were not to ask an unrelated question. Uh, but there was specific etiquette for women. They were not supposed to ask questions of an unrelated man. To do so would be shameful for them to ask a man who was not their husband. It would bring shame upon them. Now, why would these women, or more precisely wives, who Paul says need to ask their husbands at home, why would they have been asking so many questions that they were disrupting the service? Following Keener again, he points out that women in the ancient world, on the whole, were just less educated than men. They were often illiterate, and they would learn at home. They weren't often welcome at the gymnasium, where, uh, where boys would go to learn. So Paul's point here is that instead of interrupting and asking questions aloud in the assembly, they should just ask them later at home, where it's not disruptive, where it's not ruining the order that shows love. Keener notes that in doing so, Paul is advocating the most progressive view of his day. Despite the possibility that a wife is less educated than a husband, the husband should recognize his wife's intellectual capability and therefore make himself responsible for her education so they can discuss intellectual matters or issues together. So I think to sum this up, in light of a larger context of these verses, the call for order in worship, love expressed through order, as well as Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 11 that clearly allow women to speak, the silencing of two other groups in the assembly who were clearly causing disorder, and the call for husbands to help their wives learn. I, I don't see this as an absolute silencing of women uh, teaching in the church. I do see that the problem here um, is how they're asking questions, how they are going about learning, interrupting in a disruptive and loud way, which they need to do elsewhere. So again, Keener, Paul's point is that those who do not know the Bible very well, should not set the pace for learning in the Christian congregation. They should receive private attention to catch them up on the basics of Christian instruction that the rest of the congregation already knows. Here, Paul offers a short-term solution to what's going on, the disruption that's happening in the assembly, by telling them to be silent. But he also offers a long-term solution as well, that they get educated they, they get brought up to speed on what is going on. Uh, so again, some want to read Paul's silence here as a universal principle for women's silence in the church. I, I just remain unconvinced. It doesn't appear to be his animating concern here. And I think when you read it in isolation from its context, it sure sounds that way. Uh, but it seems to me that there, if there's a principle at work here, it's for order in the assembly. And um, that is what prompts this particular silencing passage of Paul's. So I want to move on 
There's obviously more to say. We can come back to this. I want to move on to 1 Timothy 2, uh, 18 to 15. This is honestly the text for those who oppose women teaching or leading in the church, as it appears to present a transcultural grounding for women's silence in the church and men's leadership within the order of creation itself. So it's going to take a little bit to cover this adequately, so my apologies in advance if I talk for too long about this. Um, But if anyone's getting tired, uh, we we could do sort of a little exercise here. Uh, I'm going to read the whole passage uh, out loud. Does anyone have an NIV Bible I can read? I brought a different translation that I don't want to read from. Or if someone could grab me one. I'm going to read it out loud. And I'm going to... uh, uh, pause at the various injunctions the things that Paul says any NRSV that's fine I can work with I can work with NRSV I'm very versatile Um, again to hear the broader context in which this comes and to consider what are things that are are transcultural what are things that are a universal command of Paul's and what might be for this particular uh, situation that he's responding to so this is what Paul says, First Corinthians, or sorry, First Timothy two, eight to fifteen. I desire then that in every place men should pray, lifting up holy hands, without anger or argument. Also that women should dress themselves modestly and decently in suitable clothing, not with braided hair, or with gold, pearls or expensive clothes, but with good works, as is proper for women who profess reverence for God. Let a woman learn in silence with full submission. I permit no woman to teach or to have authority over a man. She is to keep silent. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing, provided they continue in faith and love and holiness with modesty. So it's worth, it's worth just admitting up front that pretty much every word in that passage is, is like grounds for serious debate, significant debate. And the debate is often way above my own pay grade. and even if one is one is unaware of all the scholarship, the pages and pages uh, that have been written about these verses, it's a tricky verse to make sense of. It's a tricky set of verses to know what to do with. Um, are women never allowed to sort of get bling and look nice? Um, can men pray without lifting hands? Um, and I just want to move forward with humility. Uh, and I want to have grace and respect those who read this differently. Um, but I, again, like the First Corinthians passage, I don't think this makes sense as a universal uh, mandate for all of Paul's churches. I think he's responding to a particular situation. Uh, and his prescription is for this particular situation. So to make sense of these verses, there's a lot of decisions that we're going to have to make uh, along the way. I'm going to try to walk through as many of them as possible. Uh, but here, I think someone who's very helpful for me, this is very blurry again, I'm so sorry, uh, is a woman named uh, Cynthia Long Westfall. And her really impressive book, Paul and Gender, 
reclaiming the apostles' vision for men and women in Christ. Um, she's very helpful um, on a lot of these things. I also think Keener's book is very helpful uh, as well on this. But I want to just talk initially about three moves that you have to make before getting into the weeds of this of this text, which we'll do together. And the first thing I want to say is that this text is authoritative. This is scripture. For Christians, this means it is the inspired word of God. Uh, these are words that come from Paul. It's an occasional letter. He's responding to a situation. All of Paul's letters are prompted by a particular occasion. Some of those occasions are he wants to get to know a church or have a church get to know him, like Romans, where he's never been to Rome. Other letters show like real marks of familiarity, like Philippians or 1 Corinthians. Sometimes that familiarity is one of affection, like Philippians, and sometimes you can sense there's some real frustration between Paul and his churches, like in uh, in Corinthians. But it's authoritative, and you might not care about this at all, and if you don't care about this part of it, good for you, God bless you. But there's a ton of scholars who think Paul didn't write this letter. Uh, there's a big, big, long discussion the last 120 so years, maybe 150 years, about which letters of Paul are are authentic, which ones are not. And a lot of say this isn't authentic. I disagree. We can go through that in the question time if you're at all interested. Um, but it's just worth putting out there. So it's authoritative. The second is it's a personal letter. First uh, Timothy is a personal letter from Paul to Timothy, and it's focused on dealing with problems, the problem of false teaching in the church in Ephesus, which the opening of the letter appears to sort of clue us in that it's a fixation on false teaching. Uh, this fault, it's a fixation on genealogies uh, in the church in Ephesus. It's created all sorts of divisions, all sorts of arguments and controversies. In chapter 4, we see that these false teachers are pushing an ascetic agenda uh, where they're forbidding marriage, they're forbidding certain foods, forbidding activities. And twice he speaks about old wives' tales, that there's older women in this community that are spreading false teaching. Well, it's important to note, unlike most of Paul's letters in the New Testament, this letter is to an individual. It's a personal letter, and it's not written to an entire Christian assembly. I would assume Paul knew others would probably look over Timothy's shoulder. I don't know if he would have thought we, all these years later, would be looking over Timothy's shoulders. But it's primarily communication between two people who've had a long-term relationship. At this point, it's probably about 15 years of working alongside each other in the same churches. Timothy was mentored by Paul. He was taught by Paul. If anyone knows Paul's personality... His theology, sort of the like standard jokes that he uses in his sermons, his favorite place to get food after some mission, the patterns of ministry, the nature of his church. If anyone knows this stuff about Paul, it's Timothy. Um, so this is a personal letter between people that have known each other and have worked alongside each other for many years. Um, the last thing is this particular section Chapter 2, I am not convinced this has to do with uh, public worship. A lot of Bible translations uh, will say something about instructions on worship, sort of at the beginning of chapter 2 to mark the section off. That would mean that Paul's instructions 
are primarily focused at the assembled community uh, and, and their ordered worship. This is a very common move. A lot of commentators make it. Even my man Craig uh, Keener makes this. I just don't see it. I think it's a misstep. Um, it doesn't necessarily make the biggest difference, but it's just worth saying uh, some of this. So there's really nothing in chapter 2 that directly implies a meeting together. Um, but there, And one of the things is there's this shift. Initially, Paul is talking in the plural, about men and women. Lifting up holy hands, not fighting. Women not braiding their hair. Women uh, not dressing kind of ostentatiously. Uh, But it switches in verse 11 to a singular woman. Not a woman and men, not women and a man. But he moves from plural to singular, a woman and a man. Paul breaks a pattern of plural nouns. Uh, and he introduces singular nouns, which clues us into a shift. Uh, this is about the interaction of individuals, not a group setting. Paul confronts both the men and the women about certain behaviors that needed to be remedied. This is another reason why I don't think it's um, about public worship. Not fighting, but praying, being at peace, dressing modestly. And I think these are things Paul would want them to do the rest of the week as well, not, not only in uh, the church Service, uh, but this would be things that would characterize their lives outside of the assembly, and also it ends. This this little section ends with um, this this thing on being saved through childbirth. Uh, this doesn't sound like church assembly talk. This isn't what we talk about in church service or what they did in the first century. I think so. I, those are the reasons why, and some of this will make sense a little bit later, hopefully. But let's go ahead. And jump in uh, to this verse. What is the sort of silence in verse 11 that Paul is talking about? Um, In verse 11, a woman should learn in quietness and full submission. Some translations say silence. This is, again, from the NIV that says quietness. Um, This in and of itself is a big deal uh, in many communities in the world today uh, and in the ancient world. Paul wants women to learn. Uh, and that's probably not many people's issues with it. Uh, it's how they learn, in quietness and in full submission. Um, uh, and some translations, again, I, I don't have it here as silence. Some translations read it as silence. I think quietness is actually a better word. The Greek word here is heisukiha, heisukia. And it just means uh, uh, respectful attention or quiet demeanor. Respectful attention or quiet demeanor. It has to do with quietness, with peaceableness. It's actually connected to leisure. Um, and Paul uses more or less the exact same word earlier in, in chapter 2, in verse 2, when he talks about why we pray, because we want that we may live peaceful and quiet Lives, Not silent lives, not lives where we don't talk to each other, but lives that are peaceable, lives that are are quiet. So he uses that same uh, word there. So quietness, not silence, I think captures what Paul is after here in his initial word uh, to a woman in this church. Again, with connotations of rest and leisure, something that's true for the whole church as well not just for these women. So whatever's going on here, 
he's not muzzling women out of the gate. He's not shutting them down uh, initially. And this is actually the same word that's used in verse 12 when we get to those two prohibitions about not having authority and remaining silent, not teaching and having uh, not having authority but remaining silent. So this word shows up three times um, uh, uh, in the first uh, in a, in our chapter, and before moving into the next verse, verse twelve, I actually want to back up and consider the unusual thing that Paul says right before this about women not braiding their hair, not putting gold and pearls in their hair, as well as consider the thing that closes this verse out, the thing about women being saved through childbearing. What? What are going on in both of these things? And I'm going to call this an Ephesian frame. It's framed in things that I think clue us into the context or make connections to the context of life on the ground in Ephesus, where Timothy is working. And I think it helps make sense of things that are otherwise, yeah, just a little bizarre. So going back, uh, and here, here are the verses. And yeah, anyway, they're there. So I also want women to dress modestly with decency and propriety, adorning themselves, not with elaborate hairstyles or gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but with good deeds appropriate for women who profess to worship God. And in the end, but women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with propriety. So it might sound in the beginning, in this beginning part, Paul just wants women to be modest, low-key in style, This is maybe part of what Paul is after. But he actually might be after something more. He does name particular articles of clothing. And the connotations of these particular articles of clothing might be missed on us, but could have made a lot of sense in first century Ephesus. And interestingly enough, these things he names also have a connection to childbearing. So stick with me. And they all revolve around the patron goddess of Ephesus, Artemis. So we know from Acts 19, the latter half of Acts 19, that the early Christians caused a stir. There was a riot in Ephesus because Christians' activity there, Christians' growth there, caused uh, the economy of Artemis' idols to be shut down. There was a big problem. Ephesus uh, Ephesus was... all about Artemis. And female members of the Artemis cult were known to flaunt their wealth. A common way that they would do this was with their hair. Does anyone want to take a guess at what they might do with their hair? Any 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 guesses? Yeah, Marty? Well, I've heard that they would braid pearls and gold into their hair. That... I believe is correct. Uh, at least that's what I was going to say. It was an intricate style that required lots of help uh, to do so. And, and Lucy Pepiat, in her book that I didn't put up on the slide, Rediscovering Scripture's Vision for Women. Uh, Lucy is a, a theologian in the UK. She points out that the use of the term hairstyle here, plegma, a word that shows up only once in this verse, only once in the whole New Testament in this verse, is the exact same word that is used in extra-biblical literature to describe Ephesian women who were dressed to serve Artemis. They would braid their hair in an elaborate and recognizable manner. So I wonder if this specific target of Paul's prohibition, 
Christian women still maybe having one foot in the cult of Artemis as they have one foot in the Christian assembly. I wonder if this is more of what Paul is after here than just a general call to modesty, which I think Paul would also like. I think Paul's probably pretty good with modesty. Um, uh, and uh, especially women that are dressing in a way that resembles uh, a pagan goddess. That's what they would dress up as. They would want to resemble Artemis. And so we would understand why Paul would be unhappy with them. But the question is, why might they have one foot in the Artemis cult and one foot in um, the church? And Cynthia Westfall, in her book Paul and Gender, brings out something that is often overlooked by many commentators, especially male commentators, is that women, uh, until rather recently, and still only in the West, uh, have lived with a real threat, lived with the real threat of death, or disability that comes through complications in childbirth. Uh, Maternal mortality rates were incredibly high in the ancient world, around one in seven births. Um, And that's still the case in many places around the world um, where modern medicine hasn't changed that. A friend of ours, uh, some friends of ours just gave birth uh, to their second child yesterday, and they had to have an an emergency C-section so that uh, baby Lila could come, which is an amazing thing. Uh, But who knows what would have happened if they weren't able to be at the hospital. Now, if you had to guess if there was an ancient goddess that would have protected women through the the dangers of childbirth, who might it be? Any guesses? Artemis. Artemis, again, the patron goddess of Ephesus. Uh, was the one. For generations, women had trusted Artemis as the goddess of fertility to help them get safely through the process of childbirth. Westfall quotes another historian who says this about Artemis. Artemis was the goddess who assisted women during major transitions of their lives, from little girls to young women, from marriageable to married, from marriage to motherhood. Artemis was also responsible for the death of mothers and infants during childbirth. So you can imagine how difficult it might be for these women to turn away from a deity who had walked with them as they grew up. uh, And who had, if you used the right magic, or said the right prayers, or offered the right thing, could bring you safely through childbirth. Artemis' name even means safe and sound. This closing reference to being saved through childbearing, I think often throws us, throws, has thrown me for such a curveball. What on earth? Like, are you, where did this come from, Paul? I mean, Paul's known to say some unexpected things, but this was so unexpected. Uh, but, uh, I wonder if, uh, and this really complicates, if he's talking about salvation here, uh, spiritual salvation. This complicates Paul's otherwise pretty coherent teaching of salvation by grace through faith. Um, but I wonder uh, if the women of Ephesus, whom Timothy served, I wonder if fear of childbirth, fear of, of possible death or disability that would come with it, was front and center on their minds and front and center to their spiritual lives. As Keener notes, the most natural way for an ancient reader to have understood salvation, what it means to be saved, in the context of childbirth, 
would have been a safe delivery. For when regularly called upon patron deities, such as Artemis or Isis in childbirth. There's another ancient deity, Isis. It's not the um, militant Islamic group uh, that he's talking about there. And Paul's word here in verse 15, Sotzo, in, near, in every other instance uh, in Paul's writing, uh, it, it speaks of a spiritual salvation. So it's understandable why we would see this and think, oh, is he talking about spiritual salvation? But throughout the rest of the scriptures, the word can mean anything from healing uh, to being physically brought through danger. The Psalms use this term a lot, not to describe a spiritual uh, salvation, but just being helped by God. So I think I think that is must be there uh, in the background. And there is also again in this in this verse, it's obscured here in this translation. Uh, but there's a noteworthy shift um, uh, back to the plural. It says here, it says women, but it really should say, but she, but she, presumably the woman, who's talked about in the previous verses, will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with per, uh, propriety. So it goes from a single woman to a they. Westfall notes here that she thinks this is Paul calling in the husband to come alongside assigning joint responsibility for his wife's safety during the process of pregnancy and during childbirth. She said this would have been relevant, revolutionary, and quite effective to the lives of women in Ephesus in the first century because men controlled the size of their family and men often controlled the nature of, of, of their wives' lives. Paul is pulling the husband in here. He's speaking to the woman's concerns and their experiences of life and spirituality on the ground in Ephesus in the first century. So I think these clue us in on on some of the context of, w- of what Paul is addressing. What is the concern of these people? And I think it it makes it significantly more coherent and lands it if we land it in something that's going on in Ephesus in the first century. And I want to now move back. I know I've Started by talking about verse 11, then now I jump back to 9, then to 15. This is confusing enough as a verse if you just walk through it normally. I'm making it more confusing, but I respect you. You can all handle this. But we're going to go back up to verse 12 and the famous double prohibition. Paul saying, I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. Not silent, quiet. We've already talked about that word. Now, there is a battle here among Greek grammars and databases about the significance of the tense of these first few words. I do not permit. Whether it's properly rendered as I do not permit or I am not permitting. The tense of the verb is a present indicative verb. You've chosen to spend your Friday night in a place where someone is talking to you about tenses of Greek verbs. I'm just putting that out there. Good on you all. But a present indicative verb locates action in the present. And so Keener notes the wording of this whole passage makes it seem as though Paul doesn't assume Timothy already knows this rule. This is where the nature of this present indicative tense plays a role. I am not, as opposed to I do not. Had this been an established and universal principle in Paul's churches, is it possible that Timothy missed this? 
through all the years of working alongside, this sounds like new information. It sounds like the tense is saying, I'm not doing this, as opposed to, I never do this. And again, it's, an, it's not an imperative. Paul is not saying, don't, uh, don't, I, I, uh, don't permit a woman to teach. He's saying, sorry, he's saying, I do not. He's not giving an imperative telling Timothy to not let a woman teach. So there's something in there of the grammar, the tense of this, of this verb that is, that is something. But moving into this double prohibition, um, uh, about teaching, not permitting a woman to teach or to assume authority, the, the most, uh, un, uh, controversial word in this whole passage is the word teach. I don't think anybody has any problem with it. It just means teach. The word right after it, though, or assume authority. The second prohibition, authenteo, authentain. There is a mountain of controversy around this. This is a hapax legomenon, which is uh, a fancy way of saying it's a word that's only used once in the New Testament. It's also the earliest known occurrence of this verb in the Greek language. There is so much research, and there's huge bibliographies of scholars fighting about the meaning of this word. And the gist of the disagreement is whether or not it has a neutral air to it, like it kind of does here. To have, well, assume is an interesting word, but many just say have authority. Does this word mean to have authority, like it says in the ESV? Or is the King James on to something when it says to domineer, uh, or to dominate, or like this, to assume authority? Again, this is the only time this word is used in the New Testament. There's another New Testament word, exousia, that Paul uses every other place to talk about authority. It shows up over a hundred times in the New Testament, and it always means authority. Yet here he chooses a new word, a unique word, the only time he uses this word. I think he wants to have a different connotation about it. Westfall writes how in the Greek corpus, the verb authenteo refers to a range of actions, but the people who are targets of this action are always harmed, forced against their will, because it involves the imposition of a subject's will against a recipient's will. You can hear it a bit in the word itself. Uh, autos, which means self, and entia, which means to be armed, to arm oneself, to get ready for a fight. You can think of like an autocrat, you know. And John Chrysostom, a, a church father who wrote uh, probably 300 years after this, in his homilies on uh, Colossian, he commands husbands not to authentain their wives. Chrysostom believes that a husband's role is to love, and his wife's job is always to obey. And because of this situation, he says, therefore, don't authentain just because your wife is submissive. He's saying, don't do this word. This is a telling use of the term. Even though Chrysostom says that the husband is the archon, or the leader of the home, something Paul himself doesn't say, he says a husband should not do this. A husband should not authentain. This is clearly a negative implication. So what Paul says here in 1 Timothy, that a woman, should, he doesn't permit a woman to teach or to have authentain, to usurp authority, it doesn't entail that a man should. 
that, that is not the necessary correlation. Now, I've barely sort of scrapped, scratched the surface of research on this term, uh, but as of now, I feel like just rendering it as have authority, or even usurping authority, is misleading. This is a term that is much more aggressive and much more violent. Um, now, now, moving on uh, a little bit more, we've already mentioned about the word quiet there as well. Uh, we've touched on uh, being saved through childbearing, the kind of closing verse. But right before that, Paul offers a narrative summary of Genesis 2 to 3. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. Yeah, what's the deal here? What's, what's the point of this narrative? Paul offers this brief summary of Genesis 2 to 3 as a rationale and support for his command that women need to learn in 2.13, as well as his prohibition of teaching and authenticating in 2.12. Now, some infer that the prohibition on women teaching and exercising authority in uh, the previous verse in 2.12 is the rule for all churches because... Of this right here, they read this as a warrant. This is the this is the reason why. So, some major New Testament scholars who do their job very well and know what they're talking about, uh, a guy like Tom Schreiner, he claims that the appeal to creation in Genesis, or sorry, in First Timothy two thirteen indicates that Paul located his prohibition in a transcendent norm. That's what a lot of a lot of folks read it this way, and you can see why. He sees this as an indication of the priority of Adam. That is Schreiner's term. Women cannot teach or exercise authority because Adam was created first. Also, Eve was deceived. Uh, Though today many complementarians that use this verse as a reason why women cannot teach or lead in the church, they tend to focus on Adam being formed first and then Eve. They talk about this as a creational uh, order. But throughout the tradition, the emphasis actually was on the second part, that the woman was deceived, that women uh, somehow are less and not as smart and not capable. You don't hear that again today, but you read that a lot in the tradition. And I have to say, if you read it as a warrant, like a lot of complementarians do, it's, it's sort of hard not to avoid uh, that, that conclusion. Um, and I want to respectfully but unequivocally disagree. Um, throughout the book of Genesis, where Paul is drawing us back to, he's drawing us to the opening pages. Throughout Genesis alone, this idea that those who ge- those who come first have a natural authority is time and again subverted throughout Genesis. This is called uh, primogeniture. So Cain was born first, but Abel received God's favor. Esau was born first, but God chose Jacob. Reuben was born first, but the line of Christ came through Judah. Joseph, the youngest, saved his family and assumed authority over all of them. You can keep going through the scriptures. If you move to Paul, it is Christ himself and Christ alone who is the firstborn of all creation. And that relativizes all relationships of authority or structure for the rest of humanity. Christ alone has all authority. Paul calls himself in 1 Corinthians 5.8, last of all, as one untimely born. So to infer that temporal priority 
coming first in time entails some sort of spiritual authority or leadership, it's just not the only way to read the scriptures or to read what Paul is after here. And also, if, again, if that's sort of the movement, and then it, it sort of forces you to say women are more susceptible uh, to be deceived, time and again in Paul's letter, men and women alike share in the human capacity to be deceived. Uh, think of just Galatians 6-7. Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. Deception is not something that men are less prone to. Now, instead of presenting this creation order, that Adam came first, then Eve, uh, as a causal explanation of women's silence, I think Paul here is employing a summary of Genesis as an analogy of what is going on in the church in Ephesus. Paul is drawing an analogy between the deceived Eve and the deceived women in Ephesus, who perhaps have one foot in the church and one foot in the cult of Artemis. And this is actually the only other time Paul speaks about Eve in any of his letters, 2 Corinthians 11.3. This is exactly what he does. This is exactly what he says. He says, but this is first, uh, 2 Corinthians 11.3. But I am afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, your minds may somehow be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion for Christ. It's the whole church, men and women, who are represented by Eve in that analogy in 2 Corinthians. Eve was more easily deceived, perhaps because she wasn't around when God gave Adam the instructions. This is a common rabbinic reading of the opening chapters of Genesis. She had not been properly taught. Perhaps this mirrors what is going on in Ephesus, um, with women who are still involved in the cult of Artemis, who are told that they need to learn. They need to learn in quietness, and they need to learn in submission to what they hear. They need to be given time and space. They need to be given quiet for them to learn. So again, I think it's not necessary for this these verses, this narrative summary, of Genesis 2 to 3. I don't think the only way you can make an inference from this narrative summary is that it's causal. I think it can also be analogous. Eve was not sort of less than Adam and so more prone to deception. She just wasn't around. She wasn't as well informed. And this is why there's this double prohibition uh, to not teach uh, and to not authentic. His concern, I think, is a lacuna, an absence in these women's discipleship. So, kind of summarizing a lot of things, as we've, as you, as I can tell, there's been a lot said tonight. But kind of walking back through the steps for this verse, a, a call to modesty, and this curveball uh, about being saved in childbirth that begin and end this section, I think, alert us to the reality of life on the ground in Ephesus and sort of the the lure and the history with Artemis. Women need to learn. The women who maybe need to also not wear their hair in that way, they need to also learn. And he's not permitting a woman, the woman, who needs to learn, he's not permitting her to teach or to authentic. She needs to learn in quiet. And his use of creation here, I don't think needs to be read as a timeless warrant 
but an analogous situation to what is going on, the same way he speaks about Eve elsewhere. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to close this off. Um, I'm going to give Craig uh, Keener the last word. I'm just going to read um, some of his concluding thoughts here that I think kind of sum this up well. There is a universal principle in this text. He's talking about First um, Timothy 2. But it is broader than that unlearned women should not teach. If Paul does not want the women to teach in some sense, it's not because they are women, but because they are unlearned. His principle here is that those who do not understand the scriptures are not able to teach them accurately and should not be permitted to teach others. This text is unfortunately quite applicable today. There are all too many people teaching unhealthy interpretations of the Bible today. And most of them are men. I've sometimes said tongue-in-cheek that this prohibition of incompetent teachers thus excludes from ministry those who prohibit women from teaching. (laughs) This is, of course, an exaggeration. If God did not show mercy on us when our interpretations miss his point, none of us could count as competent. But in all seriousness, it is a dangerous thing to turn people from their call or to oppose their call if it is genuinely from God. On what basis do any of us men who are called to prove our, on what basis do any of us men who are called prove our call? We trust inner conviction and the fruit of holy lives and teaching and faithfulness to that call. And if these evidences are insufficient demonstration of divine calling in the case of our sisters, how shall we attest our own? The logic of the case can be battled back and forth with ever new arguments for years. But in the meantime, we're confronted with the issue of those who claim to be called by God and with a harvest that is great, but for which the laborers are few. My hope is that this chapter, and also this lecture, um, will open some minds and hearts to their own call from God and other minds and hearts to receive the ministry of God's women servants whom God has anointed with his Holy Spirit. That's where I'm going to stop. And we can talk about most of the things I said. Uh, um, But yeah, so at this point, you are free to move on. You're free to ask questions. I will respectfully respond. Uh, I guarantee no answers, just responses. Um, But thank you so much for your time uh, and for your uh, attention. So, yes, Marty. Question. Um, about um, if the, the way you, you talk about authentic is being yeah. probably a very negative. A negative yeah, yeah, word. yeah. So would that have been something, since he's addressing that to women or to the woman or something, um, is is the implication that these what, these unlearned women were also being sort of bullies? That, because I mean, he yeah. would have said no, neither men nor women. I mean, if it's if authentic is negative, which I think you're right, yeah. my research agrees totally yeah, yeah. that. Then basically, neither men nor women should be exercising authentic. Yeah, 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 yeah. Are, are, do you think what's going on there is that some, is that some of these women who are trying to teach but weren't ready to teach were unlearned were, or had false, you know, were like spreading yeah. the old wives' tales that false yeah, teaching yeah, yeah. were also being um, Kind of um, abu- abusive in uh, bullying in their sort of 
Yeah, I mean, I, I, that, I think that tends to be the, the implication of the choice of his words. I read so many different people that said so many different things on reconstruction, like reconstructing the scene on what's going on, and I, I actually went into this pretty suspicious of sort of the Artemis stuff, but then as I read it, I was like, actually, this just makes this make much more sense to me, and doesn't, like, it makes it much more coherent. Um, but then folks that were, had just different reads on what, sort of what art, like, what the Artemis cult was, was teaching, so I don't, I don't actually, that is something I, I don't actually know, but it, it, um, but your question was, I mean, it seems to be the implication of his choice of this unique yeah, word. Yeah, yeah. You know, even um, like Doug Moo, who is a, a very complementarian New Testament scholar, like he says, um, uh, context has to, you know, force you to use something other than authority yeah. uh, for it to, otherwise you go with authority. And he ultimately sticks with authority, but I, I find it sort of arbitrary, his reason why. I think the fact that it's the only time the word is used is enough of an instance. So it, there must have been something uh, that these these women were doing, but yeah. It could mean instigating violence. Mm-hmm. That's one of the, I mean, mostly yeah. There's this story, uh, one of the instances that I read about it was used was a guy at um, Nicaea, a, a guy who was... Uh, Forced to become bishop against his will, uh, his name is like Basileus or something like that, and he's complaining uh, because they came and authenticated him and forced him to become uh, a bishop, and he didn't want to become a bishop. Uh, so um, it and yeah, how he describes the scene is sort of like um, almost feels like he was kidnapped or something um, and forced to become a church leader, which is a it is, yeah, yeah. I wonder if those are the sort of people that should be leading churches, though. To be like, just feel like some people that are like love to be in charge, maybe need to not be in charge anyway. But yeah, Ben, were you going to say something? Maybe um, this is related to the first question. Um, is, in any of the um, in any of the research that you've read on the whole Artemis cult yeah, yeah. theory. Um, is the the authentic word connected potentially with artist worship? Like this, like well, there's just is, yeah, there's different. There, so like, <clears throat> there's different things that I read. One of the things was, um, and actually a number of people, I, I think there's probably something to this. That part of the mythology of the Artemis cult is that Eve actually came first. Uh, Eve came before Adam, and um, so part of what he is doing here is just like correcting that. And so because Eve came before Adam, women then were authenticating themselves over and against any any men, almost sort of on the paradigm of of of, uh, of Eve. Um, but yeah, I just I wasn't. Yeah. Anyway, that was just one. Yeah, one thing that um, a few folks uh, talked about. I'm trying to remember who exactly, but. Yeah. So, did that answer? Did you? Or, yeah, yeah. Anyone else have anything? Yeah, yeah. I have a couple questions. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Getting into a lot of this, you have been wary of really digging deep into the arguments simply because so much of it seems to come down to like how particular words are being used. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Who do I trust? 
addressed on this. Yeah, like, yeah, sure. I'm not an expert on Greek. Yeah, neither am I. I doubt that I will ever become an expert. Yeah. You will before I will, just to put it well, out there. But yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. I don't know what I'm getting, but can you speak at all to, um, yeah, just how to think through this issue, other issues? Yeah, yeah, it yeah. Of those careful word studies. Yeah, yeah, sure. Does that have implications for how strongly we hold these things? Yeah, or, yeah. Yeah, just speak to that uneasiness. Yeah, sure. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I think this uneasiness, I don't, I don't love, I think it's part of being a Protestant. Like, I think part of being a Protestant is that uh, the church can be wrong and scripture can correct the church. Um, this is our, this is our heritage. Sola Scriptura isn't scripture and me alone, but that scripture is the final authority. Um, and yeah, so it puts us in, in a, a, it can be in a perilous place, uh, or can feel that way, I guess sometimes. Actually, I think it's an exciting, rich uh place and like i tried to present this with humility and i i i I really admire um guys like keener and uh cindy westfall for the tone in which i mean cindy westfall probably is a little more not polemical but um she's she's there's a little bit more of an edge but like they you know even on the uh um the side i don't fall on the complementarian side um the, the council or the center the council for biblical manhood and womanhood they say this is not a first order issue and that this is not something we're going to um sort of break ranks over and you know there was a while where i was just frustrated with them following social media reading their journal and being like is this all they're ever going to talk about and then I realized it's like, it's the reason, it'd be like getting frustrated with your economics teacher for only talking about economics in like economics class. Like, this is what their job is. Like, they're, this is what they're doing. And, um, I have learned so much from complementarian authors. I mean, if I got a nickel for every time I put a Tim Keller book in someone's hand, um, I'd have lots of nickels. Um, but, um, yeah, I think, I do think, uh, how one goes about the argument and how one goes about it. And that's sort of why I said in the beginning, I'd rather be with a complementarian who takes scripture seriously and who treats women with dignity, um, than someone who holds the same position, but like, sort of gets there lazily, you know? Um, and just sort of said, like, I mean, I've heard pastors, say things like, oh, well, Paul says that, but Jesus doesn't talk about it. And I'm like, ah, that, that's not going to work for me, at least. Like, I'm not, I'm not, yeah, my tithe is coming back. I'm not tithing to, to that. Uh, but like, yeah, so, and then I, I think, I think there has to be on both sides, um, uh, a bit of, a bit of humility. And I, yeah. So I don't know, do you, uh, is that getting at it a little bit? Yeah, or is that to you? Or yeah, I think so. I, that's just helpful because I think I, um, I mean, for many of us, I mean, I, I may be in the position where I do learn Greek, but for many of us, we may never have that opportunity, and it yeah. can be kind of a dizzying. Like, this person's going to be learning from the Greek. This person's going to be learning from yeah. Greek. Yeah. Yeah. And and that's sort of also what has already happened, unbeknownst to us, anytime we open an English Bible. Right. Um, and, you know, a way that I've, walked, I've sort of encouraged people 
to study the Bible is just to read like three different translations of the same passage. And then you start coming when, when they're more or less the same, like, you, but then all of a sudden you sometimes come to things where you're like, wow, these are really different, these are really different ways of rendering, uh, the same, the same word or the same concept. And so I think that's something we're already unbeknownst to us always doing. Um, and, uh, um, yeah. Yeah, Marty, Can and I then say Sarah? something yeah. to, to this? Um, one of the things that, that after a lot of study of all these kind of things and being very frustrated and feeling, for a long time I think I thought, I, I just have to know what this verse means. I have to know for sure what was going on in 1 Timothy 2, 12 to 15 uh, in order to be able to say anything. I, I just have to know for sure. And then having read a lot of people, a lot of scholars, a lot of people who know... Greek, I don't, you know, and 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 who making a lot of sense from a lot of different angles. I realized actually, you know what? It was this incredibly liberating moment when I realized we're actually more honoring to God to admit agnosticism about a really controversial, difficult text that all the heavyweight scholars in the world can't agree on, and just be sure that we're not throwing away, holding a position that makes us throw away other much clearer teaching. Because the, the basic hermeneutical principle is, in anything, whether you're reading Shakespeare or the Bible, is you start with the clearest teaching and you um, you interpret the difficult, controversial, apparently contradictory passages in light of the clearest. So, I, I mean, I found this really helpful. Lots of new ideas. I, I have other ideas about these two texts, which I found helpful, but I, yeah. I have just found it incredibly liberating to be able to say it... It might mean this, or it might mean that. It can't mean this. It certainly, as you said so so well, it can't mean a total prohibition on women teaching because women. Paul had all these colleagues who were, and Josh, I'm going to go into great detail, but Julia, she, he names an apostle, has the highest authority. So, so I don't know. I just found that incredibly liberating. I'm, not, I'm never going to know actually in this life with absolute certainty that what those verses mean. But I can but I can say, okay, it could mean this, it might mean that, there are these good insights, but I'm not mm. going to throw away clearer teaching. That was Roger Nichols, you know, mm. who was a very clearly clear reformed biblical scholar. I'm not going to throw away teaching that is clear um, mm. to hold on to an interpretation mm. that's really problematic. So I don't know, yeah. I found that liberating. Yeah. I don't know if does and I, yeah, I mean, I think one of the things too that, and this is not just a problem with, um, uh, complementarians, but like, you know, around, uh, Mother's Day, um, a lot of maybe more or looser complementarian churches, um, allow a woman to speak because the way they in, in make sense of, of, of 1st Timothy and of 1st Corinthians 11 is that women can't be head pastors, but they can speak underneath the authority of a male pastor. And Mother's Day tends to be that day. <laughs> and just like seeing the way some more narrow complementarians just threw out these verses without, um, yeah, without any sort of acknowledgement that <laughs> there's just a lot more, there's, there's a lot going on. Uh, in these verses, I just found, I found disingenuous and, um, 
Yeah. Um, so, but yeah, sorry. Ben, were you going to say something? Just, just uh, piggybacking off what you were saying, Marty, but I'm just wondering whether, I think to some people that, what you just said, like the, the sort of liberating feeling of that, that I, I can be agnostic about the, the meaning of this text, might, to some people, sound like uh, loosening your grip on sort of sorry scripture. It's like, ah, who knows? But but it, but I can see where this is precisely the opposite. Yeah. Like if if you take the authority of scripture really seriously, if you don't know what it means, you don't just go with your best guess. Exactly. You you actually are are responsible to be agnostic, <laughs> right? Yeah. yeah uh, that that comes from honoring the authority of the text, not yeah. not kind of playing loosey goosey. Yeah. Yeah. And and I, I think it's easy to just sort of fall into teams. And like so it was heartbreaking for me to read um Gordon Fee on First Corinthians fourteen, because he thinks that passage up here, he thinks it's actually not Paul. And he is one of the preeminent text critics and he makes this argument that I, someone who has never who finds text criticism incredibly dull uh and uninteresting, I was like, this just doesn't work. Like I don't I don't think you're right. And so I found myself agreeing with like Don Carson or other. So I, I think like part of it is being honest. And, um, yeah, I mean, I mentioned Lucy Pepiat's stuff. She is someone who I, she's someone who I, I don't agree with her on first Corinthians 11. I happen to agree with her more on. So it's like, uh, I feel like there's a little bit of given, give and take on, on issues that I I do see as as more as more secondary, and you know, there's um, uh, yeah. Anyway, it's just also, I'll just say too, as someone who um does go on Twitter, that's just like not a place to learn about uh, these things because there's there's a lot. No, there's just like a lot of like lumping in of like any like complementarianism equals um oppressive patriarchy or violent patriarchy and then on the other side egalitarianism equals sort of like milk toast progressive no conviction and i just don't know i i think there's people in both of those camps that that is an adequate uh description or an appropriate description of but i don't think it is for the whole camps um and yeah so but I love being able to say milk toast. I don't know why. I just think it's the funniest, funniest thing. Yeah, Tom? I heard an interesting thought experiment on generally on the subject. First, let's just for the sake of argument, just suppose that scripture, for, for, for the rule based mind, let's assume those scriptures are exactly as they seem to be simply written. But all of them say in the church. So let's imagine there's a woman outside the church walking across the town square. And she sees another woman in distress and finds herself sharing her testimony. Other passerbys come by, some of whom happen to be men, and, and, and over here, they're in. They start listening. So we have to answer the question, how many, how many people can gather before it becomes illegal? Yeah. And, then, and, then if, and then if one of the men should happen to ask her a theological question, can she answer? Yeah. She's outside and the church. And, if, and, if, if, and if in order to be heard better, there's some steps nearby. She stands up. How many steps up? There are some of those situations where, like, you know, I mean, yeah. outside the church. Yeah. So, so she's, she's teaching man, sharing a testimony. Can't she be an evangelist? I mean, just, just crazy, crazy rules 
crazy rules trying to prohibit someone. I mean, if you want to be prohibited, just be prohibited inside the church, but most of life is lived outside the church. Mm -hmm. By the way, I don't believe the rules inside the church either, but mm -hmm. I'm just saying, if you want to focus on this yeah. inside the church, okay, so that's a couple hours on Sunday. After that... It's interesting to think, too, like there are, you know, those scenarios where it's like they allow a woman to be a, a single missionary, and so you could think about the scenario where she's, like, evangelizing a group, and exactly. then if they become Christians, if, yeah, if that's men... Third, that's third world people, so they don't count. Well, it's like that at what point does... Uh, I mean, yeah, I, that, yeah, but it's like at what point does... She then have to submit to the man, even if he's just become right. Like there right. are, and so like I think this was something that was. There's different generate in the like complementarian camp, sort of modern complementarian that you can trace back to the 80s with John Piper and Wayne Grudem. I think they were very fixated, especially this guy Grudem, um, on creating rules. I mean, he has lists of things women can and can't do in the church and in the university. So a woman can teach Bible in a public university. She cannot teach Bible in a seminary. Like, he just creates these... He's got a lot of rules. I just don't see that in sort of newer complementarians. So I, I see, like, a, a different generation. I feel like some of that rule stuff... And not because they're wishy-washy or don't believe things. I think they um, are less prone to sort of creating the sort of like the perfect. It's sometimes the rules are like they're sort of a little pillow fort around you, so you can never, like, never sin or never get hurt. And uh, I, I just don't see that with the with I, a number of of other complementarian folks that I read that I or that I know of. Uh, not that I read a ton, but yeah. But, but it, yeah, I do think John Piper and Wayne Grudem were pretty fixated on, um, yeah, like rules and they are, yeah, anyway, that's for another time. But, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, um, I think that I find it really helpful this idea of Paul, Paul's views being very progressive, sort of within the context of the Greco Roman world and like, gives me sort of fresh eyes to see that. And I guess I was wondering, I've read a little bit, but not a lot, about sort of the redemptive movement hermeneutic, and I was wondering if any of the books that you referenced or, like, things on this topic. Like William Webb? Like, uh, that guy? William Webb stuff? Is that your... Is that the... Slaves, Women's, yeah, and Home... Yeah. I have not... I have I've read that book... Like, I, so I read that book a long time ago, and if you ask me to tell you anything about that book, like, I'm like, I know the cover, and, um, uh, but, yeah, I mean, there's, I mean, there's different ways you have to, you, you, you have to, like, um, wrestle, wrestle with throughout scripture, uh, continuity and discontinuity, things, yeah, what, so, um, and there's, I haven't read a ton of people that are explicitly saying this is the, the the hermeneutic I'm employing. So like Cindy Westfall, it does much more of like a literary and historical analysis. Like that's her her thing. She spends a lot of time with rhetoric, um, uh, which another guy I didn't mention, Ben Witherington, does a lot of that mm -hmm. too. Um, but yeah, I, yeah, I don't know. I don't think I answered your question. Yeah. But, I mean, um, I guess, 
I'm yeah. just curious if anyone had sort of made the case of like, oh, Paul took it to this point in the like redemptive movement. Yeah. Something through scripture and like, where do we go after? Yeah, 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 people, I mean, I think in some sense, even just like, uh, like, like doctrinally, we have to, like the church has done that, like, you know, the new, the Bible doesn't have the word Trinity, uh, but we think Trinity names, summarizes the teaching of the Bible, um, so there's some kind of moving beyond and and I think in some this isn't exactly what you're saying but in some ways this is like the task of hermeneutics which I feel like I don't want to just like pick on him I feel like this one the, the Wayne Grudem in particular has an allergy to like hermit like he doesn't do well with and how what does this mean for us now what is the gap between um uh between when the scripture was written to today um I'm still not answering your question, um, but it is—I mean, it is something we 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 have to do. I think it's something we can't like avoid, and um, I think it's also part of the like whether or not we call it, however we call it. I do think it's part of, especially the Protestant um, Protestant ethos uh, of being of, of the Reformation that we keep returning ad fontes. We keep returning to the sources. We listen and we. Um, figure out what it what it means. We don't disregard. Like that's where I was trying to maybe perhaps belabor. Um, but yeah, the, the you know the tra- the tradition mostly speaks almost unanimously that women shouldn't be ordained not because of these explicit verses, but just because women are like some of the, the quotes that Webb walks through. You're just like, oh my gosh, like this is brutal and embarrassing. Um, uh, um, but I don't want to just like dismiss everything that's been said or think that nothing good could come from Chrysostom or, or Origen or Calvin or Luther. <laughs> yeah, anyway, yeah. So I'm going to think about that still for a little bit. But, um, yeah, yeah. The redemptive movement, hermeneutic is the name of William Webb. Yeah. Yeah, were you going to say something, Dick, or Sarah? Yeah, I think what we've said is absolutely right, that the scripture must be rethought every generation to see where it applies. But that assumes that we can look at the scripture and see what it is that we're going to apply. Mm-hmm. And I think that one of the tendencies is just to bring something to the scripture, yeah. that it must be an ever greater freedom, for example. Mm-hmm. So, Because there is a trajectory between the Old and New Testament that's, that, that's clear. Uh, but, but 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 not much. Well, but there's obviously continuity as well. I mean, there's Deborah and Helda in the Old Testament who are prophets, women who are used by God to yep. before kings. Yep. You know, and, and tell them what to do. So it's it's not as if women's prophets are a completely new notion. Wasn't in the Book of Acts wasn't there men seven daughters who were prophets? Or something? Yeah, yeah, sure, yeah, absolutely. And, and they wasn't spoken sign language. Yeah. No, no. They open their mouths. And is there a scripture? And Mary's going a scripture? But 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 it's a, the, the danger is that if we yeah. bring a, a paradigm from outside the Bible, yeah. uh, that there must be progress and greater and greater freedom. Then what gets knocked off? Yeah. That, that was prohibited. Yeah. And and what gets what are we meant to be suspicious of in terms of a prohibition? 
and, and I think it, it, it it's that, that's a dangerous thing if we bring something to the scripture. That's a good point. Yeah. And, and uh, wh- whether it be Heidegger or Foucault or whoever else, mm-hmm. uh, or, or, or Thomas, yeah. or, or rather Aristotle, yeah. Uh, bringing paradigms to the scripture seems to me is really dangerous. Yeah, or paradigms like justice, which is an abstraction. Uh, we can fill in different ways. I don't want to throw out justice, but uh, sort of like I say potato, you say potato. Like we can mean different different things, or or like order. You know, these the argument for order uh, in in the home, uh, and it looks this way. Like it, I feel like there's a lot of ways that um, I think it's a great point. Like it's very easy to bring. <clears throat> Something and have it sort of selectively defined by the things we like, um, and uh, yeah, I, I, I mean, I love, I love Galatians, I love Paul, but I, I get a little suspicious when the first thing someone says is, "In Christ, there's neither male nor female, the Jew, Jew or uh, Jew or Gentile, slave," as though it's like um, they sort of take it without any context and sort of are like. Or they say, like, in the spirit of the Lord, there is freedom. So let's be free. And it's like, well, let's, uh, let's, oh. let, let's, 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 like, let's talk about kind of what some of that stuff. Well, in Galatians like. about not being free. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, uh, yeah, so I think it's just a good, anyway, a good word. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think what you were saying about the first and scripture, understanding that we could understand this passage, um, just by reading it, um, we may not have a, what you were saying about Artemis that was fascinating could this passage be understood the second Timothy one um, without that nugget of knowledge like like is there a, like how would that be approached within just reading the scripture itself yeah 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 I mean it's yeah it's interesting uh, it's a great it's a great question um, and I'm gonna also just just because this is my reading at this point doesn't mean my own understanding of it can't grow or change. But I mean, I, it's interesting. I um, um, there's I just re- I read a book earlier, or maybe last year, about uh, African American readings of Paul, and it talked about how Paul was used in a lot of like slave narratives, and a number of women, uh, former slaves, escaped slaves, felt a call. To ministry, and they worked through First uh, uh, Timothy two without any of these sort of sophisticated historical things. But one of the things, as attentive readers to scripture, that they noticed was that um, sort of what I said about Romans twelve, First Corinthians twelve, Ephesians four, when it's talking about gifts of the spirit, they're not given along gendered lines, um, and when um, uh, yeah, when when Peter stands up on Pentecost and quotes from Joel, he's, he's talking about on men and on women and the young and the old. And so they came to a conclusion that whatever Paul was talking about must have been in a situation that was going on kind of in their church, like in the church in Ephesus, and couldn't have been universally binding because, well, one, seeing these other women workers in kind of co-workers of Paul in scripture um, especially Phoebe um, 
they were like, they chose to read, it's sort of where you're reading. Are you going to read sort of the the text on spiritual gifts, especially gifts on leadership and teaching, or Acts 2 about, you know, the sending of the Holy Spirit? Do you read those through 1 Timothy 2, or do you read 1 Timothy 2 through the others? That's sort of part of, I think, how it works, or, or what, what we have to sort of, we have to choose to do, uh, and... Um, Anyway, those were just, that was just in my mind of like one instance or one situation. Cause, I mean, the discussion of women's ordination in sort of the modern era didn't start in the 1960s. It started like in the 1860s after, um, after the Civil War and sort of after really questioning some of our assumed hierarchies in, in, in society. Um, so, I don't know. Did that answer your question at all? Or so did it? It's a good start. It's a big conversation. Yeah. 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 Um, but I mean, I think, I don't want to be like, oh, I don't like this. I wish Paul didn't say this. Okay, actually, guess what? Paul didn't say this. Some other person said this, <laughs> pretending they were Paul. Um, that, like, isn't, that's not satisfactory um, to me. But, yeah, to kind of make sense of, and there's there's also just people who've read it. Differently, without any of the Artemis stuff, differently than I than I presented tonight. Um, and yeah, I mean, I think there are people who are uh, filled with the Holy Spirit and evidence fruit of the Spirit, and we how we interpret this text or these texts are are different. And I I don't know how to yeah I don't know how to cut it another way. I guess yeah yeah Sarah. Testament professors, is, I think, 
I forget where this essay is, but he talks about the, the, the chapter in Acts where Philip meets the, the eunuch from Ethiopia and he's reading yeah, the yeah, scriptures, yeah, yeah. reading Isaiah. But it's like, how can I understand this unless someone tells me what it means? Yeah. So he has the scriptures in front of him. He can read. He's educated. He's not, he's not just an ignorant person. But he doesn't get it mm. until Philip, who actually knows Christ, <laughs> mm. um, helps make it clear to him. Yeah. So, so um, but that making clear to him by Philip is is, is I feel like if, if perspicuity is going to be used in any sort of practical way, it's going to have to include the hard work of interpretation, the hard work of being reading reading what other scholars have said on a difficult text. Uh, the clarity that we're going to get from it, is, it may, may come through that work rather than just. I pick up my Bible, pick up my English translation, read a verse, and I should know exactly what it means. I, I, I just don't think that that is true. <laughs> Obviously, different verses, you know, you, you, you're a glutton for punishment, you pick some of the most difficult passages yeah, in the yeah, Bible yeah, to yeah. interpret. Yeah, yeah. So, um, and so I think other passages are much more clear at face value. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but, yeah, I don't, I'm, just, I'm just sort of rambling. I don't, I don't know how... Um, how the church has spoken about perspicuity and how people handle that word and what it means to them, I guess. I'm just ignorant about that. Okay. Yeah, I mean, maybe if you want to, if you want to say, uh, my understanding is that, that, like, the main points of of scripture are are apparent to a reader. Mm-hmm. So, um, uh, which you know. Yeah, I mean, basically, human condition, uh, uh, atoning death of Christ, are, are sort of like main things. Human condition, God's response. Um, but yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't know. I don't come from. I haven't come from a. I I haven't come from a tradition that denies that. But that's just not something that I've come from a tradition that um, I spent a lot about. And I I do yeah. I feel like you can't get past page one. Like you've got like. Page one in the Bible, you've got a ton of people talking about different things, yeah. and not just since evolution. I mean, like our boy Augustine has like four different definitive takes on what Genesis one uh, is about, and they're all really different. Um, and uh, yeah, so did you want to say anything about persecution? Yeah, that word. But yeah, does anyone else? Yeah, Dick, or does anyone else? It's it's tricky because we each need to read the Bible, and yet, particularly with pastors like you've been dealing with tonight, there are people who are literally reading the Bible who are setting policy for whole churches and shutting the doors for women or opening the doors for women or whatever like this. And really important stuff in terms of the trickle down of history and what's. uh, I think if this is. if the, the. what you call an egalitarian position is right. Uh, the church has lost enormous giftedness of mm-hmm. an enormous number of women mm-hmm. for two thousand years. Not two thousand yeah. years, but yeah. so it's a it's a huge sort of responsibility when we think of the discussion in, in as it involves church leaders. And, and uh, so, to, to me, the, a really important thing is you, what you've what you've done a great job at, I think, uh, but is, is that 
because the, some things are very difficult to understand, we shouldn't build our basic policy on those most difficult passages. Because you see, that, as you know perfectly well, a lot of people build their whole view of yeah. what place of women is on these two passages. Yeah. Whereas in English, <laughs> whereas what what you've mentioned some of, but you didn't spend because yeah. you were doing in these could have spent a lot of time on this. Places where it talks about women as prophets are all over the place. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, how can you possibly have that if women are meant to be so, you, you, yeah. but, but Where do we put the weight as interpreters mm-hmm. in the Bible? is a huge mixture of hard and difficult and easy, and, and what you think may be easy, somebody else may not, and so forth. But, but there are certain things that just grammatically uh, are, are less able to be argued about. I mean, on prophecy... Grudem has to go and undermine what the variety of prophecy is, because he starts with the fact that women prophets in the Testament are, is so threatening to his whole position that he has to undo mm-hmm. what a prophet is. It's just being a prophet is just sort of emoting in a very unofficial and unauthoritative way uh, from your from your emotional base. It has nothing to do with having any authority at all. I mean, what? What about the male prophets then? Yeah, and and what about women who are? I mean, who have? Voice in scripture. It's scripture. Mm-hmm. The women's voice is in scripture. Anyway, but, but, but if we distinguish between clarity and those that are passages that are really bound up in contradictory ideas and words and, uh, that, that, are, that are hard to determine and enormous difference of opinion, we must be careful about building, building church policy on those in such a way, just because the trickle down is so huge. Mm-hmm. And, and as, as some wise work is, you know, we, we're forever dealing with people who are turned off the gospel itself because of what the Bible mm-hmm. says about women, they think. Yeah. Uh, and so they reject Christ because of what they yeah. think it says about women. So it's, yeah. it's a, the, the stakes are enormous. Yeah. Okay. No, I, I mean, I think you're right. And I think uh, <clears throat> you, what bothers me, and I don't know, I, I, this is where I'm glad I'm a liberty worker and not... <laughs> I don't know something else, but yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but um, yeah, I mean, because uh, um, what's the right way to say this? I feel like these the two camps that I put forward tend to view like it tends to self sort by uh, wider political assumptions. One is one is liberal, one is conservative, and I, you know, I wish. The conversation in the church could be different. So it's not just, I mean, the egalitarians that I know are not, are egalitarians through study, uh, um, through really working through this. Um, and sometimes it's just as like, from the other side, it's like, oh, it's just liberal. Oh, it's just, but then I also know folks who've gone the other way. And it's sort of looking down at like, ugh. Um, like retrograde or backwards and I do wish there could be a way where you know a pastor would not feel as um, threatened or uh, or just be able to say hey maybe you should try this diocese or hey maybe you should try if this is where you're, you're headed this maybe should be the church you go to let's not let's not assume the worst about one another or assume that um you've given up on the faith or, um, 
Yeah, or this is just an issue of control. Like I, I don't, I don't totally know the way forward through that. Um, but I wish it didn't just mirror wider sort of uh, like political posture. Yeah, yeah. I just think it has been so unhelpful because there's fall- the fallout from that are are awesome women. I I think and it's just um, anyway. Yeah. Did anyone else who hasn't spoken? Have anything to say? If not, it's it's totally fine. I've just yeah, Marty. I just didn't know no, I, just just on the the labeling, the um, complementarian versus egalitarian. I actually find those really unhelpful labels yeah. because I don't know any so-called egalitarian who does not believe in the complementarity of sex. Right, right, right. But what they're saying, what really, what the the complementarian view is arguing that that complementarity means hierarchy. Yeah, it yeah, means, yeah. So it would be more honest in a way to say, you know, we are hierarchicalists. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Or patriarchalists or something. Um, and and, egalit- and egalitarians, as I said, I don't know anyone who doesn't believe in complementarity. Right, um, that's not what distinguishes the, the, the groups. Yeah. Yeah, and... Yeah. and I think also they don't they don't fit neatly into the political camps today um, because um, you know like Democrats and, and uh, Protestants because again egalitarians I know are pro life they're you know they're not they're not just yeah 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 they're yeah not like they're not <laughs> liberal in the sense of the political yeah liberal. yeah that's a good point um, it's a, you know they they don't they're not just you know, automatically Democrats. Yeah, yeah. A lot of them are Republicans. Um, and, I, and that's why I just, I strongly just like the word, uh, the I, term I egalitarian. I, I like, I and Lucy Pepiat calls herself a mutualist. Yeah. Because uh, she's looking, working with Paul in 1 Corinthians 7 and then the beginning of Ephesians 5, submit, you know, one, submit right. one to another. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, that, that is, that captures more of the vision. Because egalitarian, right. Is it seems to sort of slide pretty quickly into, I mean, holding on to the um, uh, uh, the equality, but you lose the difference. I think sometimes, and like that, sort of is the air in a lot, like for you know on the coasts at least or in universities, yeah. Um, and yeah, and you know, there's a part of me where you know, like Russell Moore calls himself a patriarch, yeah, a patriarchist, and yeah, he's like my favorite. Second favorite Southern Baptist, um, but, yeah, Baptist yeah, yeah, yeah. person. But um, he's also my second favorite more. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but uh, but like I yeah, and that's where I'm like I don't want to not work alongside someone like him, or I don't want to just sort of assume someone who sees this differently than me. We can't work together for the gospel or under like. But that's where. It then does become complicated because this, even sometimes it is said, it's not a first order issue. It often feels like it is a first order issue. And, you know, we talk here a lot about it's easy to fall off. It's not, there's just, there's not just one side of the roof to fall off. There's two sides of the roof to fall off. And I think we all like to assume we're walking the, you know, the balance perfectly, but I mean, I know I'm probably not, but I know I need to be aware that my I'm not prone to fall to the right. That's just not going to be my. That's just not what I need to worry about. I need to worry about and be on guard against, you know, progressive Massachusetts uh, falling falling to the left. And I need to sort of, yeah, know why I believe what I believe, 
and know what I'm know what I'm prone to, you know. And I think the same needs to be for folks on the right, because in the same way, egalitarians can fall into sort of a wishy-washy whatever. Like I think folks on the on the right can fall into like at least not being bothered by like a hard oppressive patriarchy and uh, yeah. And and one of the things that that I just think is a major problem um, is how much of it's just discussion among Christians without any thought to how how what we're communicating to the non-Christian world, to the lost, to the to the women who have uh, chucked the faith because of what you know what they've experienced. And I mean, I'm just really concerned for feminists and feminist sympathizers and people who are now feminists because of um, what they've experienced in in. Yeah. In churches, and so I mean, that's I just cringed when I heard that Russell Moore chose that word. We're, uh, we should call ourselves patriarchalists or something, because mm-hmm. what that word means in our culture today, what patriarchy means, it's a yeah. hugely loaded word that you know, in, that's 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 disputed in terms of exactly what it means, but in terms of yeah. a feminist critique. And so, I mean, I, I don't want to disqualify myself from even being heard by. Non-Christian feminists who are you know, who have been hurt by Christians. It's sort of in-groupy talk between yeah. Christians rather yeah, than yeah, yeah, let's yeah. think, let's let's eat, let's try to think of how we're coming across. I mean, we went out to celebrate our anniversary last night. We ended up having an amazing conversation with a waitress who made it clear she'd been raised in a Bible-believing church and she has chucked the whole thing. I told her about your lecture tonight. She wished she could come, but she's working tonight. <laughs> but she got the Libri brochure, and yeah, yeah, we yeah, talked, yeah, and I have her email address. And, you know, she's yeah. just fed up to the teeth with with evangelical, Bible-believing Christianity because of all this crap yeah. she experienced. And just to, you know, for, I mean, it makes me sad that Russell Moore doesn't think about it, hasn't thought about the non-Christian world and trying to yeah. be embracing that word, that word. Anyway. I heard I I for what I well yeah you're completely right I don't want to any yeah I I do think I like him but I yeah. that just bugged me but I read yeah that was a while it was a while ago it might, yeah it might not yeah but anyway no but I mean I think yeah I think there is a there can be a cost and um, when yeah when it when we tend to sort of mirror the um, wider culture battle our tone towards one another. Um, is yeah, is is often pretty regrettable and pretty pretty terrible. Um, and yeah, I do think, especially like I don't I don't see even if someone doesn't take exactly my my position on um, or what I presented, you know, about these two verses. Like it's hard to not acknowledge that there's sort of at least two voices. <laughs> In, in the scriptures, and we have to figure out what what to do. And you know, I just think of Paul in the end of of in the latter half of Romans and fourteen and fifteen, talking about welcome one another. And well, you guys have to you have to live together, even if you disagree. Like the weak and the strong, the the strong have to like serve the weak, and the weak can't look down on the strong and judge them. And um, I mean, if that's not a word for North American evangelicalism. I don't. I don't know what is, and that's why Paul is awesome. And, uh, yeah. Yeah. Were you going to say something, Christina? I had another question. So yeah. Yeah. Another-
No, no, go for it. This is kind of circling back to some of the texts, and I may have just been following a different train of thought. And yeah, 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 sure. There's a lot of information. Yeah. Uh, but have you spoken at all to the kind of qualifications for eldership texts, something like Titus 2? Yeah. Uh, yeah, for, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. As I've heard it taught, that language seems to apply more of a male pastorate. Yeah. Yeah. Any thoughts on that? Yeah, for sure. Um, I mean, I think, uh, um, you know, in the same way that, like, Spanish is a gendered language and sort of the default is masculine, you know, English isn't really like that. But Greek is like that. And um, so I think the default of the translations have just sort of worked with, with that. I don't know if that's the necessary way forward. I know Tom Schreiner and Doug Moo, two like card carrying, um, uh, complementarians say the husband of one wife is a euphemism. And so it's actually, it's just, it's a way of talking about monogamy that exactly. both of them, uh, who for other reasons would want to say, um, male only leadership, think that is not what's what's being communicated there. So, um, yeah, Tom Schreiner says that in his pastoral epistles commentary, and I think Doug Moo says it in um, the, the, the first um, Recovering Biblical Manhood and Womanhood book. So, I mean, uh, yeah, they ultimately, they just say that's not, that's not, they, they come at it from a different a different way, but yeah, that's sort of how I. That's yeah. Go ahead. Go ahead. Just one thing, it, and actually, the the um, in the Greek, it actually says anyone who desires yeah. the office of elder or bishop desires. It doesn't say any man, but mm-hmm. most English translations say any man. Yeah. But the Greek is actually generic. Um, any man, anyone. Yeah. Who desires yeah. 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 Office, you know, and and I mean, I I think I agree with them on the monogamy thing. Yeah. There, there was no such thing as a woman with more. There were lots of men with more than one woman. You know, it's a mm-hmm. one woman man, a monogamous man, who, one who did not have a hetero and a and sleeping with slaves and yeah, around yeah, just yeah. one wife thing. But it really was intriguing to me to discover that it does. It, hmm. Again, the translations that say any man who desires, they're inaccurate. It's any one who desires. Yeah. So it, it includes. Yeah, yeah. Is that a good start? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, I think it's definitely, definitely right there. Um, but yeah, I tend to think um, the way, why, yeah, yeah, and I haven't actually thought about, um, I wanted to just start, I still wanted to do teaching on Paul and women, and then as I've read, I'm like, wow, Paul's really interesting in doing lots of other things than talking uh, about women. So I wanted to do other lectures on Paul that aren't, yeah, yeah, he's got a few other things to say. Um, but I want to do some more, especially on the household and stuff. I haven't thought about doing anything on those. Um, uh, but I tend to see these are sort of the hinge verses that sort of determine how folks do how how they like how or why they end up with the interpretive choices they make in in some of that other stuff. That's helpful. So, I just didn't know that. I would yeah. assume that the qualifications for eldership passages would have been the dominant ones. Yeah. 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 Y
Yeah. 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 Yeah.